So today what I'd like to reflect on a little are dimensions of insight. Dimensions of insight. And clearly a lot of what we do in our practice in terms of developing mindfulness, developing calmness, developing stillness, this is not an end in itself, but that the mindfulness and the calmness and steadiness is really about cultivating an environment that is conducive to understanding. You know, and in this teaching, in this practice, we don't actually practice insight, which is something that would be hard to practice. But we do, we are engaged in a process of cultivation, a process of nurturing the qualities of heart and mind in which the mind is inclined towards deeper understanding. So what I'd like to talk about are some of the dimensions of understanding or insight that come about on that ground of calmness. Because it really is the understandings, the cognitive shifts, the changes in perception, the changes in consciousness, that this is really what is sustained in our life. This is what makes a difference in our life. This is the kind of liberating ingredient of the practice is insight. So one way that I think about dimensions of insight is in kind of three domains. One domain is what I would refer to as the domain of personal insight, understanding ourselves. The second domain that I would refer to is is what I would more refer to as a kind of universal story the universal kind of themes of existence that we experience within our own body, mind, organism. But actually they are themes of living, themes of life, themes of existence that we share with all living beings. And the third dimension of insight, I think of it in terms of um, the the timeless insights, the unshakable insights that are truly liberating. Now there's something somewhat artificial about dividing insights into these domains as and certainly I would not like to suggest that they are somewhat hierarchical or linear. You know, I think there can be an impression in practice that, you know, first I work out my personal story, you know, and then I do this next step and then I'm enlightened. In fact, all insight is interwoven, and it is all kind of in many ways occurring simultaneously. But even though there are artificial divisions, I'd like to look at these three different domains of insight somewhat separately. Now, the first level of insight is very much to do with our, our personal story, our sense of who we are our sense of who we are, our our understanding of what makes us who we believe ourselves to be, the places in our own hearts and minds, bodies, 
that in some ways are quite unique to each of us, considering we all have very different life experiences, very different histories, very different influences upon us, that have all come together in this sense of I am. I am. I mean, when you come here and you sit on a cushion or you go on a walking path, well, guess who you meet and what you meet? You know, you don't meet Mother Teresa or Jimi Hendrix. You know, you, you meet you, how you see yourself, how you understand yourself, how you, what you believe yourself to be. We meet the complexity in many ways of our lives and hearts and minds, all of our experiences of the past, all of the ways that we've inherited the stories of other people into our lives and made them part of our story. We meet our own particular preoccupations. You know, we clearly, you know, if you sit here and preoccupied with spaghetti for lunch, the person beside you has a whole different preoccupation depending upon their particular conditions. We don't imagine that we have 40 people sitting here jointly being preoccupied with spaghetti. We know this is not so. We meet, when we sit on our cushion, of course, our own sense of longings and aspirations, our hopes for the future, our hopes of how we might be, of what we might cultivate, our longings for what we value. Now, I personally feel like it's, very, it's just very important and, and perhaps evident to acknowledge that we do not bypass ourselves on the way to enlightenment. And sometimes the endeavor to bypass ourselves on the way to enlightenment can just lead to quite considerable amount of striving, rejection, aversion, and contractedness. I think, you know, sometimes I do think we hear in meditation practice the instruction to let go of our story. I imagine you've all heard that at some point. Let go of your story. I think it's a great idea. I think it's more, more of a question of how. What does it even mean to let go of your story? I mean, if you, if you think about today, you know, you may have spent a considerable amount of time just in that story. Sometimes it's really fun, you know, when we plan and fantasize and imagine. And sometimes it's absolutely miserable, isn't it? filled with all the things that we reject and condemn and don't want, what does it mean to let go of our story? You know, in my understanding, a lot of what we do in this practice is not sort of commanding ourselves to let go of our story, but it's really finding the means and the ways really to understand and to make peace with our story. And I think that is such a shift in, in also acknowledging that you know, letting go is not something that happens at our command, is it? Letting go is not something that happens because we shout at ourselves to let go. I'm really quite convinced that I have never let go of anything in my entire life. It's interesting. But I'm also equally convinced that I'm not responsible for clinging. So what actually we do in the practice, of course, just like in the whole of the practice, we actually cultivate the conditions that allow letting go to happen. And a lot many of those conditions are to do with acceptance, are to do with compassion, 
are to do with spaciousness, are to do with mindfulness, are to do with kindness. We are making peace with our story rather than feeding it or identifying with it or, or, or building upon it, we are actually learning to see this kind of matrix of conditions that makes us who we are moment to moment. One of the instructions in, in Buddhist teaching that arises again and again is the instruction to free ourselves from indebtedness. I always find this a very interesting instruction. Because clearly it's a sort of metaphor, it's a, it's a teaching instruction, it's a metaphorical instruction. But you could imagine in your life if you owed somebody a great deal of money, you know, and you were in debt, and you know the kind of anxiety and the burden of that, the fear that would come with that about, you know, how am I going to pay this back? You know, this person in a way kind of owns me because I owe them. And when the Buddha spoke about freeing ourselves of indebtedness, he wasn't so much speaking about freeing ourselves of financial indebtedness, but freeing ourselves much more of psychological and emotional indebtedness. And if we want to know what we are indebted to, we only, of course, need to look um, at what our minds constantly return to what we constantly dwell upon, what we obsess upon, what we become preoccupied with. In that instruction of freeing ourselves from indebtedness, the Buddha also suggested imagining what it would be like for you to be able to repay this debt, to no longer owe someone this great sum of money, the freedom that would come with that, the sense of relief, the sense of putting down that burden, And he said, it is just the same as psychological and emotional indebtedness, that what we are indebted to in a way owns a piece of our consciousness, sometimes a big piece. So a lot of insight into our personal story is really understanding these areas where we feel these burdens are carried, where we feel we obsess, where we preoccupy, where we obsess, where we continually return to. What are they telling us about ourselves? What are they telling us about our lives? What are they telling us about how we are in relationship to all of this? We can be indebted to, uh, you know, some ideology. We can be indebted to some image of how we should be. You know, we could be indebted to someone in our life where there's an unfinished argument. Indebtedness is about all the unfinished symphonies that replay themselves over and over again. And freedom in this teaching is not about somehow suppressing this or, you know, condemning this or, you know, feeling this shouldn't be happening. But asking ourselves, what does it take for us to be at peace with what we are not at peace with? What does it take for us to put down the argument before we win it? What does it take for us to actually be able to surround, I mean, there is sometimes there is much in our past that we actually cannot make any outer act of peacemaking with, isn't there? There may be some unfinished argument with someone in our lives. We have done all that we can do and they still hate us. We have done what we can do, then what is needed to make peace. What is needed to make peace with some of these areas of stickiness, 
I think there's sometimes a kind of snobbery around the personal story aspect of insight, you know, as if you sort of need to get past this to get deeper in the practice. But I think what is often underestimated is that within this realm of our personal story, I am, who I am, who I believe myself to be, with all of its arguments and places of contention, that it's within this personal story that we actually learn some of the most important lessons of the practice. This is where we learn about kindness. It's where we learn about acceptance. It's where we learn about forgiveness. It's often where we learn about compassion. It's often where we learn about generosity. the, The paramis or the ennobling qualities of this path I think it is within this realm of, this, of our personal story that we learn so much about not compounding suffering that we see memories or plans or thoughts arise. And we learn something about simplicity, about not compounding suffering with, with blame or with more construction or with feeding that which is difficult. Some of the most liberating, I think, ennobling qualities of this whole path are learned within this dimension that we simply, of course, cannot avoid in any case. That we cannot avoid in any case. Learning those lessons of generosity, of kindness, of spaciousness, is actually what eases the grip of the personal story. It's what makes the difficult more embraceable. It's what allows more spaciousness to come. And then when we continue to listen, continue to listen to what is going on in our minds, going on in our thoughts, going on in our emotions, I think we we do begin to pick up on what I would refer to as another domain of insight or the universal story. Anicca, impermanence. Dukkha, existential instability, I would define it, and anatta, non-self. We begin to hear those quieter threads of these universal realities echoing through the thoughts and the mental states and the emotions. Now, in terms of anicca impermanence, you know, it plays such a kind of central role in this teaching of freedom and liberation. In fact, the, the Buddha said that the real genuine understanding of impermanence is the most transforming of all insights. That's quite a big statement. It's quite a big statement. Now, the curious thing about a nature or impermanence is the gap that can exist between our intellectual acknowledgement of impermanence and the way that we live. <laughs> and that gap is often so amazingly huge, isn't it? It's so amazingly huge. Because, of course, we intellectually agree. I mean, does anybody here think things don't change? You know, I mean, this is one place that we will all kind of nod our heads. Of course things change. Everything changes. Ah, Now, that actually has some fairly profound implications, doesn't it? To actually know that and to live in the light of that has some extraordinary implications. 
because it means that everything that arises, every thought, every mental state, every sight, every sound, every touch, every taste, every smell, every feeling, everything that arises already has written upon it, this too will change. What is the implication of that? I think this is not a big leap for us. Knowing knowing that deeply, the central message is that clinging and grasping and holding and resisting and aversion are all exercises in futility. Because they are all exercises in either trying to make things last that are already changing, or trying to get rid of things that are, of course, already changing, and that will change. I think the implications of impermanence, I think they they can and are intended to awaken a kind of urgency, a, a samvega, what the Buddha refers to as spiritual urgency. The urgency to be awake, the urgency to be free. It's not about haste or a kind of drivenness, but it is knowing that in this very fragile life that we inhabit, in which nothing at all can be fixed, in which so many conditions of this life are outside of our control, that what we are asked to find is a capacity to embrace this with equanimity and with insight. We see you only need to sit with your mind, your body, walk with your mind or body for an hour, and you see this natural and unstoppable flow of arising and passing, born of conditions. Born of conditions. The Buddha actually, you know, impermanence is not negative. Impermanence is not positive. Change is just the way things are that we can either align our hearts with that reality or we can argue with it. Aligning our hearts with that truth is a teaching of happiness and freedom. Arguing with that reality is a practice of suffering and confusion. When you look within your mind, you look within your body, you, you listen to the world, what, you, what we all see is a stream of events that are appearing and disappearing. The countless births and deaths, moment to moment. And if you think in, in, in the actual world of any kind of flowing stream, if you dam that stream, you create a sort of pressure, you create a backlog. How do we dam the stream of events in our own minds and hearts and bodies? We attempt to dam that unfolding, unstoppable stream through clinging, through holding, through taking hold of, through trying to fix things in place, or even unconsciously fixing things in place through clinging. Every time we do that, we, that happens, we feel the ripples of, us, of it inwardly because the consequences of damming the stream through clinging or grasping, the consequences are pressure, are contractedness, are a kind of shrinking of our world. 
because we are hardly aligned with the way things actually are. There is a tremendous, I think, art in the practice in really translating our intellectual understanding of impermanence into a felt and lived reality because it is such a teaching moment to moment of non-clinging, of non-fixing, of not trying to damn the stream. And every moment that that is possible for us, what we do experience is a sense of ease, a sense of spaciousness, a sense of capacity. Dukkha is the second of these universal themes, universal streams of experience. And, you know, I mean, I personally think this translation of Dukkha's suffering is a kind of crime, but it's so inadequate. I think it's more existential instability, isn't it? You know, because when we think about Dukkha's suffering, you know, it really looks pretty grim, the whole thing. But let's look at existential instability and how that touches us all. Well, there is the dukkha, actually, that we find just with, comes along with being born, quite honestly. You know, having a body that ages, that gets sick, that dies, you know, that experiences pain. I mean, none of us are exempt. None of us are exempt. You know, and this teaching, of course, is about actually acknowledging that reality, acknowledging that reality, but how we acknowledge it is significant. Because we could acknowledge that reality of birth, aging, sickness, and death with a tremendous sense of, well, what's the point anyway? You know, I mean, after all, you know, just here for a while, then we're going to check out, you know, why bother? What we're encouraged to do in this practice is to acknowledge this reality, to find that actually this is the ground that we learn about compassion. This is a ground about we, where we learn about empathy, about our interconnectedness. This is a ground where we learn about acceptance. We don't even often know how identified with the body we are until suddenly we don't have the body we think we should be having. We have illness or pain or sickness, and then we see how much the sense of me is really rooted in the body. A second dimension of dukkha, our existential instability, is, is to do with impermanence. It's to do with impermanence. Because so often, you know, we have this mind that says some things that last too long, other things don't last long enough. You know, we can see how much we're kind of governed by experience. Governed by experience. Both the experiences that we long for and love and the experiences that are difficult. We need actually to find within this kind of level of existential instability, stability within it. Stability within instability. And that is kind of taking away the accompanying mental states of, you know, I don't have enough of this, I have too much of this. Because it's kind of those mental states where the mind gets really unstable in itself. How much do we hold the bigger view, the long view? How much do we hold that? And how much do we get caught in the short view? That this is going to last forever. Or this is the way I am. Or this is the way 
you are. Or this is the way the world is. We get very, very locked into this short view. And I think the long view is very much about having the spaciousness in which there's an enormous stability to hold all of the beginnings and endings and to know that actually nothing lasts in this world or nothing is fixed apart from our view of it. That's a very good piece to remember. My view of me fixes me in place. It kind of suffocates the cha- multiple changes that are taking place moment to moment. My view of you fixes you in place. This is how you are. I'm quite sure of it. Isn't it? This is how the world is. I'm quite sure of it. There is something incredibly liberating about acknowledging existential instability. <laughs> You know, because it, it's so much the encouragement to really look at these views, how easily they arise, how easily they are imposed upon a changing fluid experience that says, you know, I am, you are, the world is. The other part of dukkha, of course, is the dukkha of conditions, which again we see is an existential instability, isn't it? I mean, you know, we, today is sunny, you know, tomorrow, who knows? Mm-hmm. The, the instability of conditions, you know. We could suffer a lot with that. You know, health turns to illness, illness turns to health. You know, good mental states turn to difficult mental states, you know. The sun turns to rain, you know. The sense of ease in the body turns into a sore knee. How often we spend in our lives arguing with the world of conditions, many of which are outside of our control, and it's so difficult for us to accept that. Part of the centralizing of our universe is somehow this very unconscious hidden belief that if I just try hard enough, I'm going to be able to control all things. Well, try try, uh, controlling whether it's rainy or sunny tomorrow. Try even controlling what your mind is going to do in the next moment. Never mind trying to control what another person is going to do with their mind. The existential instability of conditions... To understand this is somehow to rescue ourselves from these places of disappointment, of resistance, of striving, of forcing, of trying to fix things in place, of constructing views. The third dimension of universal insight that the Buddha spoke about is very much the understanding of anatta, very much the understanding of non-self. It's interesting, yesterday I was teaching a day long in London and, and I, it was on emptiness and non-self, which is kind of an ambitious topic for a day long. But um, it was interesting, some people came to me at the end and they say even hearing the phrase non-self fills them with fear. That it fills them with fear. The fear that if that was really so, their whole world would crumble as if the world is held together by my belief in myself. That's something of an illusion. And yet, along with dependent origination, the understanding of non-self in the the Buddha said these two together are the most liberating aspects of his teaching. 
the most liberating aspects of his teaching. I think it's very good to taste that. Now, non-self is an interesting one because it's too often equated with no self, which is obviously not a reality. You know, and it's why we argue with the teaching so much because if that feels so uh, counterintuitive, so contrary to our experience. I mean, when you wake up in the morning, doesn't it just feel like yourself is just waiting for you? You know, like in a familiar pair of shoes, you know, and you you just step right in and then I've got my world of my projects and my ambitions and my needs of the day and my things to do. It's because it's there, isn't it? It's just there. Now, the Buddha was not trying to teach in any way an annihilation of this. What he was trying to teach is an annihilation of wrong view. The teaching of non-self is so much about acknowledging that there is no thing, including ourselves, that has an independent self-existence. This is a reorientation of seeing ourselves. It's turning self, me, I, from a noun into a verb. Now, I think as embarrassing as it is for many people to admit, we do actually tend to see ourselves as the center of the universe. It's a kind of optical illusion, isn't it? I mean, it's like, it's like all of us would agree, I'm sure, that the sun doesn't rotate around us. Does everybody agree with that? We know. We know this is not so. Huh? We know so. And yet when we look at the sun, it looks like it does, doesn't it? Because we look like, see the sun come up over there, and it goes down over there, and we're standing quite still. And here's the sun going around us. At least it looks that way, doesn't it? And it's kind of the same idea of self being the center of the universe, equally being something of an optical illusion. Something of an optical illusion. But when we do see ourselves at the center of the universe, of course we see the whole world revolving around us. Everything is either happening to me or I'm making it happen. We we take it all very personally, don't we? Take it all very personally. So what the Buddha was encouraging was a kind of reorientation to actually investigate this sense of centrality, this this tendency to be self-referencing all the time, this tendency to see me in capital letters as a noun, and to see actually whether it's more true that that it's a verb, it's a process. If you look back on today, how many selves you have experienced... Happy self, hungry self, sad self, interested self, bored self, excited self, you know, enduring self, comparing self. Probably quite a few. Probably quite quite a slideshow today. And yet, have you noticed that every time there's one of these formations, we actually believe that we've finally reached the absolute truth, the ultimate truth of self. This is who I am. Then, of course, I make the world. I make the world. I make the world with that view. If I'm sad, the whole world is sad, isn't it? Everybody's grim, depressed. If I'm very happy, peaceful, I was so lucky to be with such a great group of people. Five minutes ago, they were my worst enemies. We start to see this processing, this processing how there's so much coming together in any given moment of body, feeling, perception, intention, above all, clinging. 
creating the self of the moment, which actually probably will last until the next major contact comes along and suddenly the sad self turns into the happy self. Now, the Buddha so much taught this, this understanding that nothing has an independent self-existence, that even my view of self is born of coming together of conditions moment to moment. He really taught this as a practice of freedom. He taught this is about the liberation from wrong view. The liberation from wrong view. And yet the liberation from wrong view or mistaken view begins with really being able to recognize the moments when there is mistaken view. What are the signals of the moments of mistaken view? Contractedness? Struggle? Suffering? Resistance? Explanation? But mostly the sense of contractedness. It is a signal that there is something that we are not seeing entirely clearly. And to investigate that, to investigate that. What is the selfing of the moment? Now clearly this is a much bigger subject we may deal with as time goes on in the retreat. But anicca, existential instability, non-self. In some ways, these three universal insights are also applied to the domain of our personal story. It's not as if we work out our personal insights and then we contemplate anicca, dukkha, anatta. It is within the personal story that there's so much sense of ease and freedom found to understanding anicca, dukkha, anatta. The last of the dimensions of insight that the Buddha referred to, in a way, is both, a, in a way, it's a very real fruition of the first domains of insight. Because it is really where the Buddha really put in the very center of this teaching the unshakable liberation of heart. The unshakable liberation of heart. The fruition of understanding anicca, dukkha, anatta. The fruition of understanding emptiness of a heart that is actually really liberated from wrong view and that is unshakable. It is knowing, actually, the transparency the permeability, the malleability of all experience. It is actually seeing through experience. It is seeing through experience. It's also seeing through suffering and ignorance. So that's kind of the size of the task. In <laughs> Therein lies the size of the task, and I wish you good fortune today. <laughs> And may you be quite happy in the task. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.